0: On this episode, we are going to travel along with me as I film a documentary. And so what this podcast allows me to do is leak information from the films that I'm working on. On this episode, I was filming at the NOCO Hemp Expo, which is the largest gathering and conference of hemp companies and hemp brands and hemp products in the United States. I got a chance to film Winona LaDuke. And I wanted to share her talk at the NOCO Hemp Expo. I thought it was important. And sometimes when you film, you're extremely moved by what you're filming. In this case, I I had tears come to my eyes a couple of times during Winona's talk. And so I wanted to bring this to you directly from the front lines of the American Hemp documentary. I'm going to finish it the next three to four months but this is definitely a special treat. I apologize for the audio quality, but the power of the words will move you to a different space and time. One of the many reasons why this talk is important is because Winona is from the Anishinaabe tribe. The Anishinaabe tribe are known as water protectors and are one of the main reasons why there hasn't been Canadian tar sands oil brought into the United States. They've been protecting our water, and we owe them a great deal of thanks. So I hope when you listen to Winona's words, you are thankful and activated to start helping. Hi there, can you
1: all hear me okay? my uh, relatives,. thank you again for the honor of being here today. I, I also want to acknowledge the Arapaho people whose land this is and thank them for allowing me in their territory. Um, I was asked to talk a little bit about the next economy. I'm going to talk first about the last economy. <laughs> that's uh-huh. to say um So this is some art from our territory. Wait, where's the art? How do I see that up there? Is that, is a painting up? Okay, Okay. sorry about that. I'm a little bit inept at the system. There. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Um, a monitor. This is some art from my territory. (laughs) This is uh, Anishinaabe art, but um, I wanna say this is a a woman water protector, and that's what I am, I'm a water protector. And I just want to tell you a little bit about where I'm from. I'm from the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. And I'm, as you heard, a hemp farmer. But, um, you know, I really think that this is this moment in time uh, that we have this opportunity to do really great things together. This is a piece of art that's called, uh, it's um, Anishinaabe art. This art is actually called We're All in the Same Boat. Um, But i like to show this art because, one of the things that I know is that indigenous art is not valued and indigenous thinking isn't valued by and large in most dis- disciplines of, um, of American intellectual thought and, and even in a lot of industry. Having said that, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, if you wanted to study the art from Europe, you went to the fine arts department. If you wanted to study the art from Native America, you went to anthropology. This is. Um, Inside, it's called X-ray vision, you can see kind of this, this construct of the idea of Indinawe Took that we are all related and looking into the beings themselves. This is where I live, Gawawe Egamag. I live on the, on Round Lake in the middle of the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. I want to talk first about making America great again. <laughs> this is my idea of when America was great. It's when there were 8,000 varieties of corn. That's when America was great. Tremendous agrobiodiversity. That's when America was great. You know, we were, we were pretty busy over here before people came to find us. Um, 8,000 varieties, all kinds. You know, a uh, 1,000 varieties of potatoes, right? Uh, tremendous agrobiodiversity, tremendous biodiversity. America was great when there were 50 million buffalo. That's what America was great. Single largest migratory herd in the world. And that herd lived on 250 species of grass in the northern plains. That All that grass in the northern plains, tremendous, biodiversity, you know, and if in that same area where there were once 50 million buffalo, there are today 28 million cattle. And those cattle, including those in Colorado and Nebraska, require an entire fossil fuels economy to maintain. And at this moment in time, I think it's uh, instructive to think about what makes the most sense in our future. What we can learn from our past and what we can learn from um, the mistakes that were made. America was great when there were not only 50 million buffalo, but when you could drink the water from every river and creek and every lake. America was great when there were billions of passenger pigeons which blackened the skies and fish in abundance. That's when America was great, and that's what I want back. I'm someone that doesn't have either historical amnesia or ecological amnesia. I remember what it was like, and I feel, and I know, that we have this spiritual opportunity to make things right. And that is a lot of the opportunity of cannabis. This is um, the beginning of kind of the decline. I'm going to talk just briefly. Um, this is a graphic that I think kind of represents the difference between two worldviews. But you know what I want to say, and I'm only going to spend a short amount of time on it, is that um, in our prophecies, our Anishinaabe people were told that we would have a choice between two paths. One path would be well-worn, but it would be scorched. The second path would not be well-worn, and it would be green and it would be our choice upon which path to embark. And what I would like to suggest to you is that um, that's actually not just an Anishinaabe challenge. That's a challenge for all of us at this moment in time. Upon which path shall we embark? And so I briefly want to talk about what the scorched path looks like in case you have a little bit too much historical and ecological amnesia, which is the case of most Americans. This is what 50 million buffalo look like when when their skulls are in Fort Dodge. This is what it looks like, Um, what, um, you know, my son is a playwright. And um, he's working on a post-apocalyptic play or a screenplay. And I said, oh, that's so bleak. He said, you know, Native people have an entire life of post-apocalyptic. We understand what post-apocalyptic is. So I just want to say that, but in this moment in time we are in, it's pretty damn scary what's going on out there, right? I'm not going to give y'all a lecture on climate change, this is probably the enlightened bunch, but what I want to say is that this was last summer, you know, the entire west coast was on fire. To the south, we had entire, you know, storms of biblical proportions, right? You know, wiping out countries, wiping out Puerto Rico. You know, we had, uh, to the south, we had these huge storms. To the west, we had uh, these giant fires. To the north, you have, you know, chaos in the Arctic to this point where today, polar bears, now cannibalize, and um, to the east you have a crazy man with orange hair screaming. <laughs> <across the laughs> world. So I'm just trying to like get real about where we're at, and the moment we have to do the right thing, and that's really you know to me what hemp makes me think of, and this is you know the tragedy of the plastics, the single-use plastics that exist. So I am someone that has spent most of my life fighting stupid ideas created by people that come from the You know, I call it the windigo economy. Um, I've spent most of my life fighting giant fossil fuels projects that combust the environment. Giant um, incinerator projects. And, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old. And I've spent well over half my life fighting stupid ideas. And what I'd like to do at some point is quit fighting stupid ideas and moving to something where we all are beautiful together. So this is the last stupid idea I'm fighting right now, and I just have to sing this out, man, because we are in the midst of this battle against the last tar sands pipeline in North America. This is called Line 3. For six years, we've been fighting the Enbridge Corporation, and they have no pipeline. They just announced one more year postponement before they could consider moving ahead. And we intend to stand our ground in that. But what I want to say is that you may not know me, but what you know, what you should know is that we're the people, the Anishinaabe people, this is what we look like. And we are the people that are stopping another 915,000 barrels of tar sands oil from getting to market and getting to combustion. We're the people that are part of closing down the tar sands, where today they have an 8% cut in production, and nobody new is investing in the tar sands. So you may not know people of color, and you may not know native people, but we're there on the front line. And now is kind of this opportunity. I'm saying, you know, give us a shot, a little bit of support on the front lines. Know that we are courageous and brave, but know that we are all here in this moment in time where we have a chance to shift this economy from one which is based on consumption of fossil fuels to something that is based on on a regenerative economic system. And that is a lot of the opportunity that we have. So I say this, and I say it in all due regard to you, you know, um, this conference and the hemp industry or the cannabis industry is by and large white males. Let's just be real about this. And what I want to say really clearly about this is that the last economy and all the problems we have are basically created by that same paradigm. And I know that might make some people a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm 60 years old and I don't really care because I spent 30 years cleaning up the messes of white males. Yeah. Right. I yeah. just Just super honest about this. And what I want is y'all to work with us to not do dumb shit anymore. Yeah. <laughs> How about that. I'm just be like we're all in this together. But I'm saying I'm not going to pretend that this is not what has happened. And the reason I'm fully placing it at your feet is that you know 80% of the top management of the Fortune 500's top 16 corporations are white men. Right? Let's yes. just be real. And about uh, 72% of Congress, I mean, the only reason that there's a change is because of the Sunrise Movement and the massive on-the-ground work to elect women of color. But before that, Congress was almost all white males, too. And so what I'm going to suggest to you humbly is that the next economy cannot be dictated by that same paradigm. You know, I'm, I'm sure Einstein said it, but the reality is is that if you think that you know that it is possible that the that the, the paradigm which created the problems is not the paradigm that you're going to find the solutions in, right? right and so i'm asking humbly that we kind of figure out how to kind of take down some of our baggage let some stuff go and figure out how to work together and this is this moment this place in this industry and this gathering is a place to really talk about that Because what I want to see is that Native people, women, people of color are, we're not marginalized in this economy. I didn't like the last economy too well because it didn't actually do too well for our people. What I want is an economy that has justice at the center of it. Not only justice with people, but justice with the earth. And I'm going to tell you what, y'all know that that's what we got to do. Because we've been pretty anthropocentric for the past while. And as a consequence, we're not going to be able to hang out a lot longer. So no time like the present to begin to figure out how to build this regenerative economy. And to me, cannabis represents exactly that. So as I said, we talked about the seventh fire, principle of the seventh fire in Anishinaabe thinking, which is you have a choice between two paths. One is well-worn, but it is scorched. The other path is not well-worn, but it is green. And if you take that path, that path of the, at the time of the 7th fire, you will light that 8th fire. You will light that 8th fire. And that 8th fire is this fire that has unity in it, that has this restorative and regenerative economy, where we get to reaffirm our covenant. You know, because to me, as I look out there and I think about where we are in, in our world, you know, humans violated our covenant with the Creator. That's what we did. We violated our covenant. And, you know, indigenous people, you know, have also you know, participated in that to some extent, but the reality is that when you violate your covenant, you kind of figure out how to rebuild that trust with the natural world. And so that is this moment that we have now, particularly in an industry like the cannabis industry. I want to be the people that reaffirm our relationship. We start with our plant relatives. We work with all of our relatives to make sure that our relationship with them is a just relationship. and is a respectful relationship. And to me, that is this opportunity we have to reaffirm a covenant. And I just say that briefly because I feel like Anishinaabe people and other indigenous people, you know, we know for a long time that you could always, like if you put your prayers down, you could always like probably get Mother Earth to give you a break. You know what I'm saying? You could like, if you prayed hard, you could get a break. And if you said uncle, Mother Earth would like let up. But I don't know if that's working right now. You know, I don't feel like it is because we violated our part of the deal so I want to get that back straightened out so that when we say, hey, when I say, we hey, say, hey, you know, we want, we want a little break here, we got a shot at that. So this is the, the next economy. I refer to this as the sitting bowl plan. There's widespread discussion by, by really smart individuals like Lester Brown and Paul Hawken, Amory and Hunter Lovins about what the next economy looks like. The Green New Deal is, of course, an element of, of, you know, what this is discussed as is the Green New Deal, the Marshall Plan or other terms for it. I prefer to use the term the Sitting Bull Plan for a number of reasons. One of the greatest political leaders of all time, spiritual leaders of all time is, of course, Sitting Bull, the you know, and, and he said a lot of powerful things, but not only did he say those things, but he acted in a powerful manner, and he is a humble man. But one of the things that he said is he said, let us put our minds together to see what kind of future we can make for our children. Let us put our minds together to see what kind of future we can make for our children. Because that's what we all need. You know, all of us have gifts. People have different gifts. I have none of the gifts that many of you have. But in that, you know, if we put our minds and our hearts together, we can make something good. But we gotta, we, we, we must renegotiate our relationships with each other for this is the Sitting Bull family." So a couple of examples of how this works in the bigger context, and then I'm going to just get into a little bit of the cannabis economy. So I don't want to go into my fossil fuels addiction counselor speech, but you all got it, right? We're all a bunch of addicts, you all got that, right? I mean, I'm right there with you. I spent my whole life consuming fossil fuels, right? Every time I breathe, I feel like I got fossil fuels going down, right? You know, that's pretty much true. And I'm I'm right there with you. I've driven everywhere, but to drive in movies. I've, you know, ordered my, you know, got picked up flowers the next day from Columbia or wherever, right? You know, and got stuff that shouldn't be anywhere near my ecosystem to eat. And then I've done all kinds of other cool stuff, like, of course, I like ordering that Fiji water just so I can get something from 8,000 miles away. What we got to do is quit doing (laughs) that stuff, right? Get local, get organic, quit moving stuff around, and and, uh, get renewable. And make it a lot more local in the energy. And so, this here is just an example. I'm just trying to contextualize the cannabis as a part of the next economy. And in that, you know, it, I'm not sure why how it worked out that way, but First Nations, Indigenous Nations, are, uh, we're the windiest place in the dark country. Uh, we're really windy. And, uh, and uh, having said that, like one, one tribe up there, the, the Fort Berthold Reservation, although I refer to, prefer to call them the Mandan Hidatsa, and Arikara, I think we got one sister here from there. You guys got 17,000 times more wind energy than you could use. That's like a mark of an export economy if I ever saw one, right? You understand what I'm saying? But part of the next economy needs to be figuring out how to get that to market, you know, and how to build local energy so that we aren't the people that are producing a lot of fossil fuels for y'all and uranium, but instead we're the people that are producing renewables and getting a fair price for it, not a cheap price, not being cheated about it. We're also the people that are just doing it. That's like my little motto: just do it. I heard Nike said they own that, but we we own that. You know. So here's an example. Here, there's a young woman. This, I love this young woman. And and um, she's from um, she's Molina Lubicon, and she's from the uh, middle of the what's known as the Tar Sands. Her little village had a had a uh, what you call it a health clinic in it. Didn't even have a electricity there. They power generated off of a diesel generator, right? You know, is that like backwards or what? You understand what I'm saying? That's like first world, third world shit that happens in Indian country. Like we don't have the right stuff. So she, for her master's thesis, decides she didn't just write about it. She put up 20 kilowatts of solar for her village. The reason I'm telling you this is that most people don't know much about what happens in Indian communities. We're the last people that stuff trickles down to. The trickle town economy don't work for us. But we're the people who just figure out how to do it. You know, there's a large delegation here from Pine Ridge and these guys are the just-do-it-people too, you know? And just across the board, but I want to say, support these kind of efforts. You know, the next economy is local and it's just and it's supporting a lot of people and a lot of them are young women doing really remarkable things. This is what happens when you scale it, scale it up. This is in the Navajo Nation, this serves 13,000 families. You know, so energy needs to be local, you need to consume less, not quit doing dumb stuff and quit shipping stuff around the world. Be a little bit more accountable for your behavior. This is your food economy. You know, this is a part of an integrated cannabis economy. I'm not a proponent of a monocrop of any sort. I think you need an integrated agricultural system in which hemp is a part of it, or cannabis is a part of it. Like back in the old days, and I think you all know this, old days, whatever it means. Because hemp is not indigenous to the Americas, but we sure liked it when we got it, right? And as you know, early on, when they first had hemp, like the the USDA used to require each farmer to grow a quarter acre of hemp and a quarter acre of linen, and that would meet household needs. You know, so to me, that's what we should all be looking at today: is how you rebuild regional economies and integrate cannabis as a part of your crop rotation. You know, I'm um, I'm gonna uh, talk a little bit more about my fiber production. This is my fiber necklace from fiber for my farm, but you know. I'm just thinking that there's a lot of aspects that really need to be looked at, not only is how the industry is structured. That's my point. Now, I want to do a call out here. This is a white food family over here in like the fourth row. Bunch of them here. You guys want to wave your hands and stuff like that? So, so this, is, this is these guys. This is their farm. Now, the white food. and I don't really know the epic story of Alex. That's me and Alex a couple years ago. It's like not, not my next picture, but I was just so happy to be there with them. And like, look, that family went to bat for hemp. Those guys, all federal charges. Anytime an Indian person want to work on hemp or cannabis, we're like getting the big charges. White guys ain't getting them same charges, right? So give some credit to these people who struggled it out after all these years. And to to me, justice looks like ensuring that people like the White Food family and other indigenous farmers are able to be good in the markets, are treated well, get the support technically and financially to ensure that their crops are able to benefit their communities. You know, because that's the thing about us. We're not private entrepreneurs. We're community entrepreneurs. We're working for our, for our communities. We live in our community. We live in our community. And we, pro- we provide jobs in our own communities. We're not, you know, we're not trying to make it. It's a difference between making a living and making a killing, you know? I want to make a living. I don't want to make a killing. Too much of that making a killing. So how you change the world, you all know this. You know, that, that we all didn't need to be all tied up with plastics. You need to have some, you know. You need to have plastics in that. In, you need to have hemp in that industry. But you and I know that you need to move out of single-use stuff anyway. Like, why would you spend all your time trying to figure out how to how to integrate and buy up a market of making more single-use hemp plastics? What if we just didn't make more junk? You know, most of the junk we got right now ends up in landfills already. And I'm driving out here today, and or, you know, and I see. Or last time we was driving around, and I see like they damn they have, they have entire buildings you know, now that are full of junk, like your storage units. We have a society which is just like collects and makes junk. You know, I think we ought to just lighten up on that. So this is, my take on it is you can make some of these that are biodegradable, but then we should probably just reuse and we should just use a lot of glass and reuse it or just, you know, quit. Just quit making stuff and, and trying to fill market niches for producing more junk. You know, at some point we need to be ethical in what we're doing. And figure out how to move move ourselves away from being all about making single-use anything. And and y'all know that the cannabis industry is super guilty of that. You know? You know, I've been in the little shops here, you get all kinds of cool plastics to hold all your hemp in. That's ridiculous, or all your cannabis in. That's ridiculous, you know. So this is part of our evolution and what we want to stand for as an industry. And y'all don't need this lecture, but my point is, is that is that, you know. Everything that I'm wearing and most of you are wearing, y'all know that is made of of, of, of uh, you know stuff that comes out of fossil fuels, right? And all those microfibers end up in our water. All those microfibers end up everywhere else. And the production of everything from nylon to polyester is toxic. You know. So what we need is a future that has that has uh, hemp in it. And so, um, as I said, I'm a hemp farmer. This is me. I'm a I'm a uh, Fiber Hemp Farmer, this is my little Winona's Hemp Farm. Don't you, don't you like my barn? is that great? Um, we're also very artistic in our village. But um, I bought that with a Kickstarter um, a couple years ago. It helped me to finance that. And we're about to do, launch another Kickstarter. I did share some of our information with y'all out there. But um, this is what we grow. We grow this fiber hemp. And I know some of you are growing this. And we would love to hear about other seeds that might be available. We have uh, 13 acres of fiber hemp up here on our reservation. And uh, that's my family, some of my extended family and guys that work with me. And this is what it looks like after it is decorticated with our Chinese decorticator. Last year I came to your conference here and I was looking for a decorticator and everybody in this room knows that looking for a decorticator is like looking for a unicorn. <laughs> There's a rumor, somebody was making one and someone had like some, right, reverse patenting, you all heard all these stories, right? It was like one story after another, I was like, it's like looking for a unicorn. But my crafty partner, he went over there and figured out the Chinese was making field decorticators. So we bought ourselves a field decorticator from China for 2,200 bucks and by the time the Trump administration, it cost 50 bucks to ship to Chicago from Beijing, and by the time the Trump administration was done with us, we had about almost $3,000 into that baby because of all those tariffs that were put on by the Trump administration. So of course, we'd like to be manufacturing stuff like this in this country, like decorticators. And, um, you know, there's, in, in, the, in the industry that doesn't exist, we don't manufacture anything in this country and you and I know that these historic hemp mills that existed in this country, this is, uh, you know, some historic hemp mills that existed. The state of Minnesota used to have 11 hemp mills in it. We produced our own clothing. We produced all our own canvas, we produced all our own rope. Last operating place in this country that made hemp rope was the Stillwater prison. You can be sure some of my relatives made that rope. You know? So, you know, my point is, is that this is what it looked like, and what we need to do is, is collaborate together and figure out how to make this next economy. Um, and that economy is going to need to be just, and it's going to need a lot of technical support. About half those people, this from last year, right? Our team from last year. Um, you know, the only other things I want to say is a couple, just a couple thoughts. I went to a couple hemp meetings in Minnesota, I have a state permit, three years of a state permit. And in that state permit, I uh, went to a state hemp meeting and it was pretty much all white guys and me. And I listened to them talk about, could you use glyphosate on it? Someone actually asked that?
0: Right, and so they said a lot of other
1: things, you know, and it was like kind of like taking the paradigm of industrial ag and putting it on hemp here. And what I want to say to y'all is that the plant is not a slave. The plant is a magical plant, primarily a lot of female women's energy in that plant. I think that we, you know, I'm begging you, I'm not begging you, I'm just saying it's time to change how we relate to the plant. You know, do not treat the plant as a slave, and we will do a lot better if we want to heal our planet we got to keep using the same paradigm of exploitation and extractive practices. We need to be the people that reaffirm and figure out a whole plant approach and how to make sure our plants are healthy and are happy. You know, I think about plants and this opportunity and this is a Mexican proverb, but I basically feel that seeds are about promise. Seeds are about possibility. In my community, we have a lot of seeds. Some of our seeds are wild rice seeds drowned out for 17 years on one lake and 50 years on another lake. When the conditions were right, they came back. They came back. Seeds are resilient. Seeds are about promise and seeds are about life. And I think that this opportunity in the uh, cannabis industry is about that. Thank you for your time very much. I'd be happy to answer a couple questions. But again, miigwech. Thank you for your time. I just want to say that the timer wasn't on up here the whole time, so that was a guesswork. Any <laughs> questions? Yeah, I have time for like one or two questions that are quick. One or two questions? Anyone? No? No? Oh, oh wait. Yes? Oh, talk more about regenerative farming and what are Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, so I am, I, I became a hemp farmer four years ago. Uh, But I have a traditional, uh, I grow traditional agriculture, I grow corn beans, squash, potatoes, tobacco, Jerusalem artichokes on a rotation using uh, mostly fish guts and manure. And we're working to rebuild our soil up in a a crop rotation. We have a number of farms that bought our reservation and in our territory that we are working to kind of rebuild this and then adding hemp in as a part of that. My CBD girls are right by my horse pasture, they love it, you know. and. I, so, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm learning from the plant because I never grew it until a couple of years ago You know, so I'm the I'm the one that I think my friend here Shane had to coach me to explain that they were females I mean, that's how odd of it. I was like plant sex, you know, I was like oh my god, mm-hmm. so um, That's a lot of our work. We also are post petroleum and pre petroleum our varieties are pre petroleum indigenous uh, varieties that have much higher levels of of a lot of nutritional value than the, than the commercial hybrids and they are climate change resistant. I kind of refer to that, I mean a little bit, they're more resilient, that's to say big frost, big wind, my, my corn still stands. Um, so I think it's the kind of foods you need to grow in a time of climate change and so I'm interested, and we also farm as much as we can with our horses. That's what we're using them, White Plume allies for. I mean, yes, yeah, so we have three teams of horses, yeah. So that's what I think of as post-petroleum, pre- and post-petroleum agriculture. Yeah, we do. And it has to be scaled small. People, everybody wants to talk about scaling large. People have actually talked to me about, well, how is that gonna, I said, you gotta do a whole bunch of small things and then aggregate them.
0: Yeah.
1: Because the structure does count. The, you know, I'm an economist by training, but that whole economies of scale argument is bullshit. It's bullshit. The reason, you know, the reason I say that is that it doesn't count all any of the diseconomies or the collateral damage right. of that level of, of destruction. And if you, you, know, if you understand what I'm saying, so I'm saying small is beautiful. Has relationship. You can sing to your plants. You know, that's the way to go. And and everybody's happier, including you and your plants. Yes, brother. I think you just answered my question, but I think how do how do we learn from the ancient knowledge that is lost? Yes, I was, I had been invited to a, to a healing circle, and I think what came out of that was hemp as part of, with the indigenous communities, has, has the beautiful land that has been untouched for a long time, and I think that's the key, is getting back to community, showing the rest of the world how it can be done, and it can start (laughs) with with your communities, where, where we need to open our eyes and get back to that knowledge. Yeah, I mean... You know, there's there's not one easy answer. I'm going to say, like that kind of a rough thing to say to you is is get your foot off my throat. That's kind of a rough thing to say, but I don't know if you, if you understand what I'm saying is like every tribe is faced with this like onslaught of industrial aggression against them, and and so what we need is people to help us resist. Trudell would call it the beast you know people with the great philosopher and political leader John Trudell passed away a few years ago but he used to say people ask me why I don't garden and I say because someone has to keep the beast out of the garden right so help us keep the beast out of the garden the windigo, right We're yeah. right so we can like because it's everybody's got the same problem right and then support these projects I mean there are a lot of small native farmers here that need you know, a lot of us need technical support and a lot of us need financial support. So work with us as partners. Don't be all, like, extractive. I mean, the, the cannabis industry scares me. There's so much smoke and mirrors in here. And there's so much, like, the same paradigm, I'm going to make a million bucks. So I see our tribes being wooed by people that I don't trust. Yeah. You know, and we don't, we don't want to do that. You know, there should be, like, the you know, so what I want is I don't want predators coming to my reservation. What I want is justice. So we want good, you know, good negotiations and good deals, because I don't want to be like a peer on someone's package while they're making the money, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Which is the we <laughs> part, right? So this is the opportunity to work in partnership. You know, I mean, just to give you an example, my tribe has 837,000 acres of land. You know, some of these, like, these guys have like 2 million acres. A lot of our tribes have land but they don't have the capital to rebuild a hemp industry on, right? So work with us in a way that we rebuild that in an organic manner. I mean, the next the next economy is organic. And, and we're doing that with, with our Canadian indigenous it's, friends. Yeah, no, happy to, happy to visit with you, but, you know, it's across the board. A lot of these First Nations really just need, like, good partnerships, trustable people, because, like, I am sick of, like, you know, ghost-busting and saying, stay off, stay out, you know? I mean, because it's just really, you know, it's like you, know, so you have the snake oil dealers and then the alcohol dealers and then the Catholic priests, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I don't need a new round of those guys coming in that says we're going to help you, you know. Mm-hmm. What we need is, like, real partnerships. So, thank you.